0: Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. I want you to imagine that uh, let's say you were you grew up in a small town and uh, like a lot of small towns especially in this part of the country um, the center point of the city was a downtown courthouse area much like we see in our town and other towns in this area. And at the top of that courthouse there was a a very prominent clock. Uh, and as it was, uh, especially in the days that many of these towns were founded in the 19th century, that clock provided uh, really the the time for the for the whole city. Um, and you, as you grew up in that town, you were fascinated with that clock and the movement of it. It was always right on time. Uh, you could see uh, the precision, the accuracy with which uh, that clock did its job day after day after day after day. Um, and as young people often are, we get curious about lots of things, right? You know, we're growing up and we think, well, how does that clock do that? How does it how does it know exactly what the time is and how does it process through the hours and minutes uh, each day in order to maintain accurate time? So as you're growing up and you're fascinated with this clock, one day a city official offers to give you a tour. And you get an opportunity to go up in the top of this clock tower and to see all the gears, all the mechanisms, all the pulleys, this whole system of, of intricate engineering that allows the clock to do what clocks do. Now, nowadays, you know, it's a chip, right? But back in the day, and then obviously there are still mechanical clocks. Have you ever seen the inside of a clock of that stature? And it is is a mind-boggling maze of gears and pulleys and beams. You just look at it and you go, how on earth did somebody come up with that? Let alone did they come up with it to where at least the good ones yield very accurate time? Um, Growing up, I was fascinated with how things work, and, and whether it's a clock or a car or a VCR or whatever, um, it's always been fascinating uh, for me to to see things like that. Well, what we're going to do today is we're going to go inside the clock tower, and we are going to get a tour that I think is unequaled in the Bible. There are sections in Scripture... Not very many, but there are sections in Scripture where God, as it were, says, I'd like you to come up the tower and I want to give you a tour behind the scenes, so to speak, to see the mechanics, to see the engineering, to see behind the theological curtain, if we want to call it that, the intricacies of who God is. And what we're going to look at at least according to most theologians, is one of the most profound looks behind the theological curtain. Not as we just think about theology and Christianity, but as we actually get to see a little bit of what makes God, God, and, and what the Trinity is, and, and what's the heart of Christianity. God becomes a man so that he can live as a man, as it were, keeping the law perfectly, which is what we were supposed to, to do. And then because he's a man, he can be a substitute for us. And he can go to the cross, and he can bear our penalty, and he can die all as a, as a, as our substitute. Um, We're going to look at the amazing doctrine of how God can become a man today. Look at Philippians chapter 2. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, just start at the beginning of the chapter because we, we need to really get a sense of the context here. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose... Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And now we get to get part of the tour. Who, although he existed in the form of God... Did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. Do you see the gears? Do you see the mechanics? Do you get a glimpse of the schematic of how this thing called the Incarnation works? What we're going to do is we're going to make two passes through this text. The first pass, uh, we're we're going to kind of buzz by high altitude, fast speed, and we're going to do the same with some other texts of Scripture that provide a context for understanding this verse. Uh, and then next week, we'll come back and we'll do uh, a low and slow approach, okay? And we'll look at it in more detail. We'll get out our our microscopes and um, tear it apart and put it back together. Um, what is this text teaching? It's teaching that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth, and as it says here, took on the form of a bondservant, literally a slave. And he became obedient to the point, I'm sorry, uh, he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. So God becomes a man in order to come to do what? According to this text. Why did he do that? To die, Now, yeah. he came to die, God becomes a man in order to die um, the the doctrine of the incarnation teaches that God is or that that Jesus is one hundred percent God and one hundred percent man at the same time in one person at least that's how that 's how I teach it to my kids he 's one hundred percent god he 's one hundred percent man at the same time in one person and that's what we see here uh, in much more detail than that uh, but he came he, God became a man to come to the earth to take the form of a slave to be made in the likeness of man so that he could humble himself in order to die as a substitute for our sins okay? now I'm going to say this and I'm going to say it again next week let's not forget the context. What is the context of this chapter so far? For us, like For us to be like Christ, specifically in our humility. Okay. So what what theologians love to focus on in terms of the theological implica- implications of the Trinity, things like um, do you guys ever heard the term um, kenosis? How many of you heard of kenosis before? Okay, put your hands down. Hypostatic union. All right, good, good. We got some... uh Is that this thing buzzing? Okay, I'll try not to get too excited. Um, the, um, the kenosis, the hypostatic union, those are terms that refer to this section of Scripture. But even as we plummet the depths of theology and mine it for all of the theological truth that we can yield here... Let's remember the context that at the end of the day, Paul's main objective is not to give a theological excursus on how God can become a man in Christ. The point of all of this is to remember that we are called to be like Christ specifically in our unity with one another and our humility with one another as we strive to be like Christ together. Take your Bible and turn back to John chapter 1. Let's look at some context here. John chapter 1. Follow along with me as I read, okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Wow. That's the account of Jesus' origin, if you will. Um, You remember all of the gospel writers had different purposes for writing. John's purpose is to present Jesus as the Son of God and whereas some of the other writers uh, focus on his physical birth, his human birth, like Luke does in Luke chapter 2, John focuses on his eternal beginning, that Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, has always been around. He's always been with God. He's always been God, as the text tells us here. He was in the beginning with God the Father. Verse 3, all things came into being by him. Jesus is the creator. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. We understand that, right? He's going to elaborate on this in a minute, but Jesus comes as the light of the world. He comes declaring the gospel, declaring the truth of who God is and and what one uh, needs in terms of being reconciled with God, but people that lived in darkness didn't understand that. Verse 6, there was a, came a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist, not the John Uh, the apostle who's writing this account. There came a man uh, man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. And you guys remember that, right? John the Baptist came and he was the forerunner of Christ and and he would go out and he would say, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he would call people to repent because Christ, the Messiah, was coming. Verse 8, he was not the light, meaning John, but came that he might bear witness of the light. Now there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He, talking about Jesus now, was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. One of the most tragic verses in Scripture, verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Talking about the Jews. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he came the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, so if we can kind of picture it, you have have Jesus, the Son of God, here called the word, or um, if we want to get technical, the logos. And you guys remember in math? Um, math gets goofy the older you get. You notice that? You know, when you're young, it's like. You add these two numbers together, you subtract, you multiply, you can go to the store and you can figure out what change you're supposed to get back. Okay, this is basic math. And, and then they start throwing letters into it. You're like, what are letters doing here, right? And then there's missing numbers and you have to use the letters to find the missing numbers and it gets very complicated with algebra and whatnot. Um, occasionally in math, we, we have to do things uh, in order to see concepts, in order to see what a function will do or something like that. And we have to say, well, let's say that this went on to infinity and beyond, right? And when we, you guys remember the little symbol for infinity? It looks like an eight that fell down, an eight that's sleeping, right? Looks like this. And as if that's not complicated enough, you're trying to learn about infinity in, you know, eighth grade, right? I mean, you're just trying to... Remember how to put your shirt on the right way, right? And wear deodorant and things like that. But um, we talk about negative infinity. Remember that? So Jesus, according to this text, has always been with God. He's always been God for all of eternity. Okay? That's what he is. That's who he is. We won't talk about this right now because the text doesn't specify this. He's always been the Son. Uh, theologians call that the doctrine of the eternal sonship. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Whoa. What is that teaching? Jesus humanity. His humanity. Okay. Expand on that a little bit. Uh, well, in human form he's reflecting the perfect image of God. Okay. Yeah, and this is this is where you just your mind kinda halts the eternal Son of God, who is God, He's always existed as God, He's always been around, there was was a moment in time that He took on humanity. And in some way that we'll only understand in heaven, the perfect Son of God, 100% deity, 100% God, He's always been around, is, is fused with humanity. And we'll see this in a minute, so that from that point, for the rest of eternity, he will be God and man forever. And John just says, the word became flesh. Now the word flesh can mean lots of things. In this context, it just means he became a human being. He became a person, a human person. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. John's saying it wasn't like this is hypothetical. This is some theory that I read in a book that there's this God. Met. No, it's like we, we ate with this guy. We, sorry. We, we saw him. We hung out with him. We, we listened to the words coming out of his mouth. We walked with him. We spent time with him. We saw him sleep. We saw him eat. We saw him drink. We saw him learn. We saw him do all these things. And that sort of introduces the the mystery of who god of, of who Jesus is. How can an infinite being be united to a human being that is finite? right? How is God, who knows everything? How can he become a man who has to learn stuff? you see this? And it's a profound doctrine and mystery, and like I said, we get to heaven and we'll learn how all it works. But John just kind of says in passing, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now Paul's going to explain what he means by that a little more in Colossians. So. But look down, let's just keep reading. Verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said... He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of this fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. And I love this verse. Look at verse 18. No man has seen God at any time. Now, stop right there. You say, well, weren't there a few places in Scripture? Well, Moses got to see the back of his glory. There were some prophets that got to see visions, which are different than seeing the essence of God's actual being. So you got these hints of people that saw the afterglow, the back of his glory, the glory, um, visions, um, things like that. But But God, in terms of his person, the Bible is consistent. No one's ever seen him because you can't see him and live, according to Exodus. So how on earth do we get to know this invisible God? It says no man has seen God at any time, but watch this, the only begotten God, and that just means, um, begotten means he holds a, a place of uniqueness. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, or we might say is near or is close to the Father, he has explained him. So, What John is saying is, no one's ever seen God. But now that the incarnation has happened, we have an opportunity, you ready? To see God. Jesus is God. He is God incarnate he is the exact representation as we'll see of his glory the the perfect image the the representation we don't get any closer to seeing god than seeing jesus and, and that's why you understand that that's why when jesus shows up that's the culmination of revelation when the son of god walks the earth himself and says this is what god is like remember he talks to his apostles well if you knew me, you would also know who? The Father. If you've seen me, he says it even like this sometimes. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he is, as John told us here, he is the glory of God. He is the radiance of God. And even though in past ages no one has seen God at any time, this, this unique God, this unique Son of God, who is in the bosom of the Father, who is close or near to the Father... He, Jesus, has explained him, the Father. In Jesus, we get to see God. Turn to Colossians. While you're turning there, let's see if we can add to our picture here, okay? So John says "This, this eternal Son of God, the Word, the Logos, becomes, what does he become? He becomes flesh, okay? So so maybe you can think of it like this, and you understand that as soon as we pick up a pen and start to draw, as soon as we give an analogy for something that cannot be explained, you understand that we're in a sense, in in dangerous territory, okay? So this is not intended to be, you know, the schematic of the second person of the Trinity, but just a way that we can think about it. Word becomes flesh. And as we unpack this, what we're going to see is that in one person, Jesus takes on a second nature, if you will. He becomes one person who embodies the nature of God, 100% deity, in the nature of man, one hundred percent humanity. Um and, and footnote humanity as originally created, which is without without sin, very important. Okay. Um and we'll we'll watch how this develops here. Look at Colossians. Uh, these are these are fun texts to run through because they're so helpful. Colossians chapter one verse thirteen for he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now look at this, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Uh, Literally it means a a living image. He he is a representation. He is a picture of the invisible God. Now now notice, that sounds a little bit like John, right? No one's seen God at any time. Well, Well, how do we get to know him? We get to know him through his son who is not invisible because he's the God-man. Does that make sense? So he is the image of the invisible God. He he is how we get to know what this invisible God is like. Verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, don't, don't trip over that word because we just learned that he was eternal, right? He, he doesn't have a beginning. So by firstborn, what that's saying is he holds a special place over all of humanity over all of creation and verse 16 explains that unique position it's not teaching that jesus had a beginning that that he was there was a time when he didn't exist and now he does exist that's not what firstborn means verse 16 in what sense then is he the firstborn or or the unique uh special status over creation verse 16 for by him all things were created well there it is right He is the firstborn of creation in the sense that he's its creator. He's the one over who rules and is Lord and master over the creator, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, the doctrine of God's sustaining of his creation. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's another way that he is unique or he has a special status. Not only is he the Lord and master and creator of all creation, but he is also the first to rise from the dead. So that, verse 18, he himself might come to have first place in everything. And then verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him fullness of what what do you think yeah it's the fullness of his deity by context it's it's the fullness of his godness yes huh. And I'm wondering if monogenesis is where we get the word genes and mono means one. It's kind of like one in gene, one in. And I'm just guessing here. I don't have an Am I stretching it? If, if David Gibson were here, we'll see if he would know the etymology on the fly. I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. and I'm mm-hmm. Again, I don't right. know. Yeah. Right. 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 It's right. Like a of the image of, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and they mean kind of what I what I said that they mean. Um, the etymology is interesting because you guys understand that 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 a lot of English words are built off of Greek words and Latin words. And sometimes Latin is built on Greek. So, but um, so yeah, you you can look at, at Greek words, and sometimes you can see an English origin. But um, in in general, in general, the English word does not mean. Or I'm sorry, the Greek word does not mean what it has come to known to me. Back up. In general, the Greek word does not mean what the English equivalent means, uh, even though there may be an, an etymological link there. Yeah. Uh, we we can do some word study together if you want on that, but um, the the first word, uh, monogonesis means um, it means you know the the uh, a unique position in that regard, a unique status, um, and this, as it says here, firstborn. You know, you can hear the the pro first. You know, and that is that is a, a word that we recognize. Um, because he holds that place of first position over creation and then also those who rise from the dead. Anyone want to comment on that? Anybody bring your your Greek lexicon in today? Yes, Dave. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. correct right yep it's a good point yeah yeah and you're right because that really is the thrust of it is he is preeminent he is overall he's in first place as it said yeah very good thank you okay so verse 19 let's sum up here and then we'll move on for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him um play roma since we're talking Greek words this morning. Um, and you know what it means? If you look it up in a dictionary, you know what it means? You do a word study on it, spend hours on it, it means fullness. It does, yeah. Fullness, the fullness of deity, uh, that it was God's pleasure that he would be 100% God and that would dwell in him. Okay, you've you seen how this comes together? The fullness of deity. He He is one person, he takes on flesh but without ceasing to be God. He's 100% God and 100% man at the same time in one person. Let's look at one more text together. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Theologians reflecting on the Colossians text Like to say that Jesus is of the same nature as God the Father. He is of the same substance as God the Father. All the fullness of deity uh, dwells in him there. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. This is a great section here. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days He has spoken to us in His Son and the the thrust of the text is he he's he 's spoken once and for all now, why is that why when Jesus shows up, why is that the culmination of revelation it 's all pointing to him, it all culminates in him, and he is the image of who of God right so you say when when the writer steps on the stage, the play is done, right? You understand that, right? He, he comes, he says, here I am. And he allows us to see God, not just revelation through a prophet or through um, an Old Testament saint or through a book or through something like that, but we see, uh, you know, we talk about the incarnate word and the written word, right? And this is the incarnate word of God. Jesus, as a real person, comes to explain God to people. So in these last days, verse two, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the world. You notice that all three of the texts we've seen have made that same point? That he's made everything. He's the creator of all things. Verse three, and, and this is where it gets really, really exciting. He is, Jesus is the radiance of his glory, of God's glory. Um, that word radiance means the brightness, the the, the visible glow. I, it, it's one of those words that you say, well, the reason we have a word for it is because it's really hard to explain. Um, God's glory is his character, his nature, his greatness, on display and we see that in certain places throughout scripture where god we get a glimpse of god's glory and everybody's just like whoa because it's putting god's amazing being on display in some sort of visible way Well, well watch how this works now look back at verse three jesus is that radiance of his glory Because in Jesus, we get to see the weightiness of his character. We get to visibly look and say, that's love, that's forgiveness, that's patience, that's wisdom, that's power, that's knowledge. All these things we've been learning throughout the scriptures about who God is, Jesus comes and we get to see it with our eyes. Because he is the radiance, he is the brightness, the glow the reflection of his glory. But not only that, he is the radiance of his glory, and Jesus is, look at this phrase here, the exact representation of his nature. The exact representation. It it means a reproduction, a representation. It's a a true-to-life image And he is a true-to-life image, an exact representation of what? Of his nature, of his substance. This is a different word here. The previous words have talked about his deity, have talked about that he's God, but this is a word that means that the essence of his being, Jesus is of the same substance as God the Father. He's not just a picture, he's not just, okay, I, I sorry, um, sounded cyborg-like there for a minute. Um, he's not just a perfect portrait. He, he's not just an image or a reflection in the sense that it's, it's not the real thing, but it's just like the real thing. That word means he is actually the same substance. He shares the same nature as God himself. And it is, it got Latinized later on, but that is the word hypostasis, where we get in Latin and then finally into English, the hypostatic union. Okay? So, the eternal Son of God, who's always been around, He's with God, He is God, He's eternally existed as the Son of God, in the Incarnation... And in the Philippians text that we looked at, he emptied himself. That's the word kenosis. We'll talk more about what that means next time. He becomes the God-man. One person who has two natures, God and human, in one person at the same time. That is the doctrine of the Son of God. Now, uh, let's uh, got a little behind here. Oops, I need uh, part eleven, please. That looks like part ten. Can you pull that up, please, real quick? Yes, thank you. Yes, David. Uh, know what infinity is? What's negative infinity? It's like backward. Yeah, if we got a t- if we got a time domain, I'm sorry. If we got a time domain, that way would be forward infinity the other way would be negative infinity yeah so we, we can think of it as eternity past well both really yeah just uh, in, in theology we would call it eternity past meaning before the world was created before genesis 1 before there was time itself jesus and his father and the spirit were in one accord um enjoying fellowship with one another there was no beginning to them so the the way we try to well how do we think about that we call it eternity past yes yeah yeah or we can think of it as negative infinity that's that's what we call it in math we call it eternity past in theology but it's really referring to the same thing okay how are we doing there guys We have two natures? Let's, that's a really good question that I can't answer in 30 seconds. So let's hold that. Uh, well, the answer is it depends. Um, let me write it down. Do you have the stick drive, Wes? Okay. Um, can I have your outline? Who has an outline? I can borrow. I'll just, I don't have your notes with me, so thank you. Okay. Let's, let's just do it old school here, guys, okay? Uh, the hypostatic union on your outline, the union of Christ's divinity with humanity in one person. The union of Christ's divinity with humanity in one person that's what the hypostatic union means so at lunch today when you're with your friends you say i learned a new term today it's called the hypostatic union right i I was you will not say this publicly right i'm going to edit this off the tape i was trying to teach this to my kids the other night and i kind of came up with a little song a little jingle hypostatic union okay we were doing this little thing right and there were angry birds involved and that's all i'm going to say Flip your outline over. This is nothing new. In the fifth century, as the church was in its infancy, uh, you know, there were a number of church councils that were called to discuss various important theological matters so that a a definitive statement could be established in order to uphold orthodoxy and to guard against heresy, right? And uh, in 451, in October, it started in October, ended in November. Uh, the Council of Chalcedon was called, started on eight on uh, October the eighth, and concluded on November the first, uh, in Chalcedon, which is near uh, Constantinople, now known as Istanbul in modern day Turkey. And amongst other things that they met to discuss, they met to discuss. How do we think about the, the, the Son of God, the person of the Son of God, the God-man? Because there's all sorts of teachings going on. Christianity was, was, um, obviously they didn't have the communication abilities that we had and, and they were trying to really, uh, guard against some of the heresies, some of the teachers that were taking advantage of Christianity to make a name for themselves. And they met together. And, um, uh, how many of you grew up in a liturgical church where you, recited the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, one of those, okay? Now, if you grew up in a liturgical church and you recited the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, you will recognize the language because the language comes from these councils, okay? So I've listed the whole thing here for you, but I want you to see how how did the church fathers, as they wrestled through these texts, how did they articulate what we're talking about? And this really defines what we would call orthodoxy in regard to the person of the Son of God. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Do you see that? He's 100% God, he's 100% man. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable, and in that day meant rational, soul and body, consubstantial, meaning co-essential, meaning, meaning of the same essence, with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. So he, now, now watch this, see how they did this, this is genius. He is of the same substance of God the Father and he is of the same substances of you and I in terms of our humanity minus our sin. He's true God and true man. In all things likened unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, there's a little Catholic thing going on there, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. Now, now here's, here's if you're going to underline something, here's what you underline, because this is the, the, the crux of what they concluded. Inconfusedly, try that at lunch today too, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union. So what are they saying? When Jesus became the God-man, their natures were not mixed together. But they remained distinct and separate, even though they exist in one person the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence. That's another good word. We would say substance or person. Not parted or divided in two persons, but one and the same Son and the only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning Him. And the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Father's. Has been handed down to us. What are they saying? He's 100% God, 100% man. They don't mix. There's a distinction of the natures, but existing in one person. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a Catholic or a Protestant, everybody believes that. Unless you're a heretic. I like uh, Terry's dad, Paul Enns, in his Moody Handbook of Theology. I like his explanation because it's a little more understandable. But basically what he's going to do, he's going to translate uh, the Chalcedon uh, statement here. Here you go. The two natures of Christ are inseparably united without mixture or loss of separate identity. He remains forever the God-man, fully God and fully man, two distinct natures in one person forever. Though Christ sometimes operated in the sphere of his humanity and in other cases in the sphere of his deity, in all cases what he did... And what he was could be attributed to his one person. Even though it is evident that there were two natures in Christ, he is never considered a dual personality. In summarizing the hypostatic union, three facts are noted. Christ has two distinct natures, human and deity. Number two, there's no mixture or intermingling of the two natures. And number three, although he has two natures, Christ is one person. Isn't that amazing? Do you see the gears? You see the schematic. You see the Son of God. And next week, we'll talk about why. Why? Because there there is a theological motive and reason behind God's genius design in the incarnation and the hypostatic union. So we'll talk about that next week, and we'll do our low and slow approach through Philippians too. Now that we have some context, all right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Um, We know that without the truth of what we just studied, there would be no substitute for us. Uh, There would be no one who could be perfect because he was God. There would be nobody who could stand in our place because he was man. Um, But if God becomes a man, That he can offer a perfect sacrifice, a perfect death, a perfect life, and do it because he was man in our place. Uh, Lord, we stand in awe of your amazing design, of your plan, of your purposes. And uh, Lord, all we can say is thank you. Uh, Thank you for sending a substitute because he is our only hope, he is our life. And we needed somebody uh, to stand for us so that we would not incur the wrath of God forever, but could actually be credited with righteousness to be with you forever. Father, we love you. Thank you for these glimpses in Scripture that just blow us away. They remind us of how little we really understand about who you are. But they give us enough information to have hope and to stand in awe of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.